All right, we are starting a brand new book of the Bible today. So, Gospel of John, if you can find that book, that would be really good. So, let me pray again before we get started. Father, as we are opening your word now, we um, ask you to bow our hearts before you and um, submit ourselves to the authority of the word of God through the apostles, and we praise you for the opportunity to study together, to read together, to uh, look at all that you have for us over the months ahead. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so um, just about anybody reading the New Testament notices one thing almost right away, because they start in Matthew And if you're reading it in order, you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you get to John. And most people right away notice that the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are kind of similar, right? And the fourth one, the Gospel of John, is very different. Most people pick pick up on that. So the first three are, um, they're called the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic. What in the world does that mean? Well, the word literally means it's seen together, but um, it's a word that was chosen by, I don't know, highfalutin scholar types, I guess, to, um, to point out that Matthew, Mark, and Luke look alike. In other words, they, they, they run kind of in a similar way. The overall structure is similar. If you read right through them, they feel the same in the way they, they're designed. You know, you got the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist, and it kind of goes through the life of Jesus like that in kind of a structure way. They're they're very similar, and they cover a lot of the same events. In fact, Mark, which is the shorter gospel, um, 90% of Mark is in Matthew or Luke. And then probably 50% or so, 40 to 50% of Luke is in Matthew, and Matthew is, you know, but kind of similar like that. In other words, they, they're the same in a lot of ways. They're covering a lot of same same territory. The Gospel of John looks different. It's structured completely different. It uses a different vocabulary and focuses way more narrowly than the other Gospels. It just picks, on a, picks out a few events to focus on instead of many, many others like the other Gospels do. 90% of John is unique. It, it doesn't line up with Matthew or Mark or Luke. It has different information. One writer put it like this. There's no genealogy no manger scene, no boyhood, no baptism, no temptation, no Mount of Transfiguration, no Gethsemane. There are no scribes, no lepers, no tax collectors, no demoniacs. There are no parables in John (laughs) and his gospel. But that's what you think about when you think about gospels, right? So um, why is that? Well, the time and the circumstances of John's writing, I think, has a lot to do with it. John is the last of the living apostles when John was written. We don't know the exact year it was written, but it was late in the first century, either in the 80s, maybe even into the 90s AD. So somewhere in there, John's good, dear friend and former business partner, Peter, has been dead for a long time. The apostle Paul has been dead for a long time, maybe like 20 years or more. You know, John is the last survivor. So the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and Mark are already broadly circulated. They've already been written. They're already out there. When people think of the Gospel of Jesus Christ in written form, that's where they go to. And John is, um, he's putting the capstone 
and all of that in his old age. So Christianity is expanding as well. So John is so old, you could actually say this is the third generation of Christians. You know, there were the early Christians and then their children and then the next generation as well. And John is still around, you know. So um, the faith that is so well established in many parts of the Roman Empire, there's churches, and it's still going on, of course, the expansion of Christianity, but it's so well established in many key cities that already you've got spin-off um, sects, cults, uh, variations on Christianity. When we were in First John, we talked about the Gnostic movement. That was one big one that was going on, uh, totally reinterpreting Jesus, ignoring everything in the Bible and making up their own philosophical Jesus. And those kind of things, they had these innovative teachers that were eclectic and pulling from here and there. And, they, and Christianity was so well set they're pulling from that too. And so there's a lot of wrong things being said about Jesus Christ or the salvation or the gospel or all of those kind of things. So John in his later years, his main focus is to set the record straight about who Jesus is and why he came into the world. Because there's a lot going on out there of other opinions, just like in our day. But that's, that was starting by the time his life was coming near the end. It, it was already a... Um, an increasing number of odd ideas running around out there. So he wants to fix that. So he's the last apostle chosen by Jesus himself. That means he's the last completely authoritative voice to the church until Jesus comes back. So there's no apostles anymore. There's no authoritative teaching structure. We've got everything we've, we believe right here. And um, all we can do is study this. And come to con solid conclusions about that. So John writes a very different gospel with that in mind. So it's not a comprehensive look at the story of Jesus. The number of, event number of events that he covers are few. Where the other gospels cover all kinds of things. Lots of space in John is devoted to conversations. And in the other gospels there's very little space devoted to conversations. Um, very unique in that way. These interactions that Jesus had with his opponents as well as people that were interested in him. So, um, and then you've got a, in the latter portion of the gospel, you have a very, very lengthy time of Jesus with the apostles discussing things. This is on, you know, at the Last Supper. There's chapters on that, conversational information about that. Also, the synoptic gospels hardly talk at all about Jesus' ministry in Judea, and John sort of focuses on that. So, Galilee was up north, you know, Perea to the um, east of there, and a lot of the ministry in the other gospels takes place up there, but John focuses heavily on Judea, where Jerusalem is. Jesus didn't typically spend a lot of time there, but that's where his focus is, which is very helpful for us, because he... He mentions a lot of archaeological things. Not To him it wasn't archaeological. It's just stuff that was there, right? But for us, we've dug up a lot of stuff. And uh, even now, they're, they're very recently, they've found even more things that John talks about that are exactly the way he described. When he wrote, Jerusalem had been destroyed for 20 years or more. So um, that's significant just for modern studies and all of that kind of stuff. So John also explains and responds to Jewish opponents of Christianity, which was still going on even though the temple was already destroyed and Judaism had gone through its own trials with the Roman government, but um, 
Jews were still strongly opposed to the gospel. So his gospel talks to them too. And sort of ex- there's inter- a lot of interactions between Jesus and the Jewish opponents, the Jewish authorities there. So, um, so the, he, he is so strong in pointing those things out. Uh, we get a really good sense of what the first century church was dealing with, not only with the secular world, but with the Jewish world as well. So, and then in John's very unique way, very unique way, his gospel is the most philosophical and the most challenging gospel for great minds. I'm just using that term. People that are philosophically minded, they love to think about things. John's gospel is designed for them. But in his own particular unique way, he does that. So he's presenting to the world and the intellectual world a Jesus that cannot be ignored. That's what he's doing. He, the claims he makes about Jesus and the evidence that John supplies has to be dealt with by anybody that's an honest searcher for truth. So um, it's very valuable in that way. We should also talk a little bit about John's style. John Morris, who's an expert on Johannine theology or writing, John's writing, he says, I like the comparison of, there's an old comparison, he's saying, I like the comparison of John's gospel to a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant can swim. It is both simple and profound. It is for the veriest beginner in the faith and for the mature Christian. Its appeal is immediate and never failing. And that's true. To wrestle with the philosophical concepts that John brings to the table that the other gospels don't even go to is, is, has gr- grabbed great minds all down through the ages. And it, it's, um, but it's so simple. It's so simple in so many ways. Deceptively simple because it's incredibly profound. But as we noticed in John's letters, we've been studying John's letters, his vocabulary is incredibly simple and small. John, John displays in the Gospel of John like a 600 word vocabulary, which is like a seven, seven year old child's vocabulary level. Um, but these ideas that he develops are incredible using that very simple vocabulary. We saw that in 1 John and 2 John and 3 John too, that he just has a very simple style of writing. He likes simple language, but he's talking about amazing things. Um, his thoughts are as deep as an ocean and his vocabulary is that of a child. And I think I've told you guys, whenever you study, when you start studying New Testament Greek, they always put you in one of John's books because the, the, the grammar is so simple compared to the others. So it's a good place to start when you're studying Greek for the first time. So, and honestly, this level of depth using simple language, it makes it difficult sometimes to understand some things. And I kind of think that's why after all these years, I'm only now ready to preach John's gospel because it kind of intimidates me actually the way he, uh, and I love John's gospel and my personal beliefs have been shaped by so many key parts of it, but some parts of it drive me nuts. So it's like, I never really wanted to go all the way through it, like verse by verse, but we're going to do that now because um, there's just, just like in first John, there's parts that are just hard to grasp from the language that he uses. He uses such simple words, but he's talking about such profound things. So um, for me, at least Matthew and Luke, are not just easier to grasp 
Um, they also present a much more comprehensive look at the life and the public teaching of Jesus. And that's why I've taught through Matthew twice over the last 30 something years and Luke twice. So, um, but I've never done John. He scares me. <laughs> but now I am ready to humble myself before the great apostle and try to do justice to him. And I'm also getting a little worried because as I get older, I'm kind of worried about meeting John in heaven. <laughs> he might say, oh, you were a pastor and a Bible expositor? How did you, what did you think of my gospel? <laughs> Never really got around to it. <laughs> I'd be so embarrassed. I don't know if you can be embarrassed in heaven, but if you can, I don't want to have that happen. So I'm hoping to meet him. I'm sure there's a long line, but um, I don't want to take the chance. But now, if we can do this, I can say, Brother John, I love your gospel. And I did my best with it. Even, even though I couldn't do it justice, I did make it all the way through. So that'll make me feel better when I get there. So today I just want to give you some introductory thoughts um, on John's very special and unique gospel narrative and then after Easter we'll, next week we'll do something about the resurrection but then after that we'll look at the prologue which is epic and one of the greatest portions of the entire New Testament, the beginning, the first 18 verses of John's gospel, we'll start that in two weeks, which also has some hard parts in it but uh, I should just say up front this gospel is a literary masterpiece. It, it actually is. And the more you dig into it, the more amazed you are by his ability, especially using such simple words to put so much out there. Matthew is brilliant. But Matthew's pretty straightforward in, in telling um, what he wants to say. John is doing so much more than telling Jesus' story. He's weaving a very intricate tapestry of ideas into it. And that's what you draw out of it. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? And Matthew will tell you, but John goes deeper and farther. And uh, it's so helpful. So the more you look at what he does, the more astonishing it is. And I hope I can bring some aspects of his inspired mind to you uh, in my own clumsy way and try to get as much as we can out of it. And since we know from our earlier studies that John likes these simple, simple key words, not just simple words, but simple key words that he repeats over and over again um, to express these incredible ideas. I'm going to begin there. So we're going to start with John chapter 20. <laughs> Wait a minute. What about the other? Now we'll get back to those. Chapter 20 is actually the true end of the gospel. Chapter 21 is an epilogue, just like the first 18 verses of chapter 1 is a prologue. But the gospel actually ends at the end of chapter 20. And what Don, John does at the end is tell us why he wrote the gospel. That, you always want to know that, especially going in, right? He states his purpose. So look all the way at the end. And I can spill the beans now because it'll be a while before we come back to John <laughs> chapter 20. I can't promise how long. I think it'll go faster than Matthew and Luke. It won't be like three years. But because um, John tells, John has larger sections you know, if I put it like that, so we can cover a lot more ground more rapidly. But anyway, it'll be a while before we get back to this particular chapter. But the last words that John wants to have ringing in your ears at the end of the gospel are Thomas's words, doubting Thomas's words to the Lord Jesus. So remember, Thomas doubted. He, he wasn't there the first time Jesus appeared to the apostles in the upper room after the resurrection. And when they met up with Thomas later. They, oh, Jesus came. And he goes, I don't believe it. 
I couldn't. You guys were seeing a spirit as though. I don't, I don't even know how that could possibly happen. And so um, Jesus comes again while Thomas is there in the room. And Jesus invites him to touch his wounds. Right? And he shows him that he was real. So Jesus says in verse 27 of chapter 20. Reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And does Thomas come to believe? Oh, yes. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. That's faith. Jesus said to him then, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And then from there, John explains the purpose of his gospel. Verse 30, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There's three words there in verse 30 and 31 that really define John's whole gospel. They appear over and over again. And the, sign, the words are signs, believe, and life. Those three words, signs, believe, and life. The first half of the book is all built around signs, okay? Not dozens, like all the other Gospels, you could say, well, there are all kinds of signs in those. No, John narrows it down to seven signs until the final epic sign that follows the seven. You could call signs miracles, but he doesn't use the word miracle ever. He uses the word signs. Why would he choose that word? Well, they're pointing to something. What are signs? What, are, what do you do with signs? What are signs for? They give us information, right? One way street. That's an important thing to know. <laughs> this is the snack aisle. Walking through the grocery store, snacks aisle. Yeah, okay, that's a sign, tells you something, gives you information. No shirt, no shoes, no service. There you are, see? Gave you information right there. Signs often point to things as well. Exit. You go up to Walmart, welcome. Exit. <laughs> go in that door. Not that, of course, people totally ignore those, but, um, but, that, but they're there. Use this lane only to exit to this spot, right? Those kind of things, right? Signs point to things. So the signs in John's gospel point to Jesus Christ. That's what they point to. The Messiah they point to him as the very son of God. God in human flesh. The miracles in John are not just manifestations of supernatural power. They are material witnesses to Jesus Christ as God in human flesh. That's what they're for. And the way John constructs his gospel, the way he structures it, he moves back and forth between signs and usually some kinds of conversations. It's a little more complicated than I just said it. But that's kind of how it flows. 
So Jesus is the one having the conversations each time. It can be with an individual like Nicodemus or the woman at the well, for example. Those are intimate and personal conversations. But as time goes on, as you work through the book, the conversations become more like lectures or exchanges with groups of spiritual leaders in the Jewish community who are opposing him or outspoken individuals that jump out of the crowd and say something to Jesus and he's it causes a major interaction a lot of back and forth between Jesus and other people and generally the conversations are even centered around the signs or the desire for signs so they're related in some way to all of that so Jesus will do something that points to him as the son of God and then there will be a conversation about what he has done or a conversation that sort of illustrates whatever the sign might be so Back to our three key words from John chapter 20. The signs are the revelations of Jesus' person. They point to him, something about him that's significant. Belief in Jesus is the correct response that people should have to the signs, right? Life, and it's usually eternal life is the way it's actually said, is the result of believing so the signs point to Jesus you are to put your faith in him believe in him and if you do that you have life eternal life that's how the whole gospel works so the signs call on us to believe on Jesus as God incarnate God become flesh and when we believe God grants us eternal life it sounds so simple well it is simple but it's not presented simply it's a it's a it's a wild ride through the gospel but, uh, but that is the good news of the gospel, those three words. That's it right there. And although Jesus did many, many signs, and he says that right there in chapter 20 at the end, John chooses just seven to lead up to the ultimate sign, the greatest sign of all, which is the resurrection of Jesus after he was publicly murdered. So let me just tell you what the seven signs are real quick um, that John chooses to highlight. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, it's the turning water into wine. John chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, healing this royal official's son. He heals him from a distance. John chapter 5, he heals a man by the pool of Bethesda. That's one of the things they've uncovered over there in Israel. Um, who was sick for 38 years. John chapter 6, that's, this is one in the other gospels. The feeding of the 5,000. Um, John chapter 6, 16 through 24, walking on water. That's also in the other gospels. John chapter 9, there's a pretty full story about healing a blind man. And then John chapter 11, which sets up the great events of the last week of Jesus' life because Lazarus lives just down the road from Jerusalem and Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And when he does that, the reasons all those people are ready to welcome Jesus with palm branches on Palm Sunday, uh, which is today, um, is uh, because of that miracle. Uh, with regard to, to Lazarus. So each of these signs shows in some way Jesus' power over the created order. They tell us something about his authority over his creation because he's presented as the creator of all things right at the beginning of the gospel. So he can do what he wants to overturn the natural order of things because he, he made the world and the universe and all that there is. So the laws of nature belong to him and he can manipulate them by his will if he wants to and that's what you're seeing all through the gospel 
So let's follow the signs from their first mention and see how God, how God through um, the Apostle John connects them to our other key words. So we're going to look at the word signs near the beginning of the gospel and see how that leads to belief and life. That's what we're going to do right now, okay? Do you understand that? So who knows what the first sign was? Do you remember? It was turning... Good job, man. You guys are like sharp. So that was the miracle at Cana, the village of Cana. So let's go back to John chapter 2. Now you remember he did this at his mother's insistence, right? Son, take care of this problem. You know, it's not my hour yet. Just do what he tells you. (laughs) All right. Verse 11 of John chapter 2. I'm just, I'm just pointing out the word signs here. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the disciples at the wedding of Cana who witnessed this incredible miracle I and mean, he makes a lot of wine out of water and they're, they're putting their faith they already believed he was the Messiah or you know they were following him. But now they're believing something a lot deeper about him because this, this is pretty amazing what happens. So see how the signs lead to belief there, right? They believed in him. That's our second word. So signs and believe. The word believe is used in an extraordinary number of times in John's gospel, like a hundred times. So in just those 21 chapters, it's used a hundred times. It's the gospel of faith, the gospel of belief. That's what it is. That's why he wrote it, right? That you may believe so after the miracle at the wedding in Cana John tells the story of Jesus cleansing the temple of money changers I'd like to do that (laughs) he drives them out he causes quite a stir it's not a popular thing the uh, temple leadership are aghast and they ask him what right he has to do it to come in there and upset the apple cart and upset a lot of real carts and, and uh, tables and stuff. But listen to the way they, they challenge his authority. Ver- verse 18 of chapter 2. What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? So you see how that worked? So he's already set in our mind this idea of signs in the wedding in Cana. And now he goes and cleanses the temple. And the temple rulers come to him and say, What sign do you show us To show that you have authority to do this. What is the proof of your authority? Show us a sign. And Jesus responds with something very interesting. He doesn't say well I'm the son of God. Or anything like that. They ask for a sign and he gives them one. Except they're going to have to wait for it. And he says this. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. Now we'll go through that story in more detail later. But. John says in that chapter, they think he's talking about the temple, this grand, grand Herod's temple, this amazing building. It takes 50 years to build. And, he, he's, he's, and John says he was talking about the temple of his own body. Destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. So this, this is really early in Jesus' ministry. And so here's John early in his gospel planting the seed that's leading us to believe when he reveals at the end of the gospel the greatest of all signs, the resurrection of Jesus himself. So he's already planting that in chapter 2 and we're heading that way. 
And as we've seen at the end the resurrection will lead Thomas to his declaration of faith and that brings it all to its proper end. My Lord and my God. That's where we're headed. So the first key word is sign and the resurrection will be the ultimate sign. The second key word is believe. Now we saw in chapter 2 the first link that John makes between the sign and believing is when the disciples believed in Cana when Jesus turned the water into wine. The second link between sign and believe is at the end of chapter 2 at the conclusion of Jesus cleansing the temple. Um, John writes in 2.23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. So as part of that temple time, that time there in Judea at Passover, people were observing his signs that, and they were believing in his name. Many people believed in him. They believed, why? Because of the signs. That's what's supposed to happen. The signs point to Jesus and when you see who he really is, you believe. What about our third word, which was life? Well, John chapter 3 flows right out from those many people believing because of the signs in chapter 2 to this visitor that comes and visits Jesus by night. He's a member of the Jerusalem council, one of the 70, one of the top uh, legislators, lawyers, uh, judges of Israel, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And do you remember how that conversation actually begins? What got it going? Well, the first thing that John records out of the mouth of Nicodemus are these words. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So there's signs again. So he's touched in some way. He's drawn to Jesus by the signs. At the very least, these signs tell him God is with Jesus. Okay, Jesus is a special person and God has given him some power and God approves of him. So Jesus is God's man, according to Nicodemus. He's gone that far already. Then Jesus tells Nicodemus right away, he says, you must be born again. Then they have that whole conversation about that. He doesn't understand that. And they, they discuss it. Jesus says you should have known this. You're a teacher in Israel. But Jesus does share with something he can understand. And eventually does understand. And believe. It's the most famous Bible verse among evangelicals. Football players write it on their eyes. So um, let's start at verse 14 of chapter 3. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so the son of man must be lifted up. So that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And then it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So right there in John 3.16 you have the word believes, our second word, and the word life, right? So this is how those three words fit together in the gospel. Nicodemus comes because of the signs. And they point, they point to Jesus as the son of God. And you are to put your faith in him and that gives you life. So it's the signs that lead up to the declaration. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that's our third word. John 3.16 is the first use of the phrase eternal life or life in John's gospel. John will mention eternal life 
17 times in the gospel. So we must believe in Jesus for eternal life, for us to receive eternal life. It's the sign of that. So Nicodemus saw the signs and he concluded that Jesus must be God. And I think a lot of people today, if you talk to them, they would say, well, yeah, Jesus was from God. He was some God's man. He revealed something about God. He was God's teacher. But to have eternal life, you have to believe in Jesus as he is, as the gospel reveals him, not just your own opinion about it. And that means believing in Jesus, not as some kind of messenger, but as God in human flesh, because that's what John is revealing in the gospel. The, he's the redeemer who saves our souls through his sacrifice. So John doesn't want us or won't let us, I should say, think about Jesus as a prophet or a good teacher or something like that. John sets forth what is of first importance that Jesus is the creator. That's what he's going to tell us in chapter one. And then the gospel begins with Jesus as the creator. Then the creator is the one who dies for us. So Jesus tells Nicodemus. And if you read John 3, 14 through 16 carefully. What's he saying? The son of man, which is a messianic title from the Old Testament. The son of man is the son of God. Both those ideas are there together. And the son of man must be lifted up. Which means the son of God will be crucified. And then verse 36 of chapter 3. He who believes in the son has eternal life. He who does not obey the son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. We'll talk a lot more about that when we get there. But it's not surprising that wicked men resist the love of God, resist being forgiven by God, resist the Son of God, because the price of eternal life is believing in the Son. And if He's God the Creator, God become man, then coming to Him involves bending the knee, worshiping Him, honoring Him, giving Him all that He is due. And human nature is against bowing the knee to God. But by God's grace, he overcomes our nature and draws us to believe in Jesus for eternal life, which he grants freely. So remember the key words, signs, believe, life. They summarize John's message. Another thing about John and his gospel, which we'll just kind of wrap up with this, but is to show how Jesus used God's name to talk about himself. And I just want to talk about this right now for just a moment. Way back in Moses' time, they just showed the Ten Commandments on TV again the other night. Moses asked God his name. And do you remember what God said? I am that I am. Yeah. I am who I am. Did you know that Charlton Heston was the voice of God? As he was, as well as being Moses. Did you know that? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. That's because Cecil, Cecil B. DeMille was so full of himself, he thought if you ever heard God's voice, it would be your own. I, <laughs> no, I don't know if that was full of himself. I just said that. It's, but he did believe that. But uh, he said he believed it. Anyway, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Right? That's, so God's name, in Greek, it's ego eimi. It's uh, I am. And because John is presenting Jesus as the creator, as the very incarnation of God, he quotes Jesus using I am seven times. John loves seven. Seven times to identify himself. 
Each statement by the Lord Jesus tells us something about him, but altogether they present a pretty compelling picture. So here they are in order. I'm just going to list them for you. John 6:35, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. John 8:12, I am the light of the world. That's quite a statement. John 10:7, I'm the door of the sheep. You're the way to get into pasture. John 10:11, I am the good shepherd. John 11:25 I am the resurrection and the life. John 14:6 I am the way the truth and the life. John 15:1 I am the true vine. So you find your life in him. So we'll talk about each of those as we work through the gospel, but we can say when you take them all together, Jesus is all that God is. He he there's nothing lacking in him. And Because of that, everything we need is found in him. He came to save us. So we could talk all day about the unique and wonderful features of this book. But in closing, I just want to mention that um, as far as John goes, he never mentions himself by name. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know it's him because we can compare the gospels and figure out who that guy is. But that's what he calls himself. The, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And uh, this historical evidence is really clear that John wrote it as well. But John was one of the inner circle among the apostles. There were three, his brother James and Peter and John. They saw more and they heard more than all the other apostles. They were very close to Jesus. John was literally laying his head on Jesus' breast when uh, the, the Last Supper when they were together. So very significant. He was the only apostle who witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. He's the only one that stayed with him all through that torment. And the Gospel of John does contain precious, I guess, memories, more than precious, but memories of his time with Jesus. But it's not a memoir. It's not about John. That's why he doesn't use his name. None of the Gospel writers use their name. But um, everything in the Gospel From the beginning to the end, everything in it points to Jesus. So when he shows up, it's just to help point to Jesus when he talks about himself. That's why it doesn't contain all the stuff that the other gospels do. Because if it's outside the purpose of pointing to Jesus as God incarnate, who's the source of eternal life, he just doesn't cover that. It's already been covered by the other guys, but that's, that's not where he's going. The Sermon on the Mount is not in John's Gospel. There's no teaching portions like that in John's Gospel. Even though it's the greatest sermon ever preached, well, why wouldn't he put it in there? Because the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God, but John is totally talking about the king. So yeah, knowing how to be in the kingdom of God and what kingdom life looks like, that's really important. But that's not his theme. His theme is the king himself. He's pointing to Jesus. It's Jesus teaching. In Jesus teaching, we do see his authority. You see that in the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount only hints at who Jesus is and how he saves us. it's It's not focused on that. But every bit of John's gospel, every bit of it tells us about the person and the saving work of Jesus and our need to believe on him for eternal life. Everything is dedicated to that. The whole gospel is about that. So we're going to walk through that together over the months ahead. So the gospel of John is a great book. It might be the greatest book of all time to really understand who Jesus is because that's his 
purpose and his theme. It presents the claims of Christ to the human heart. And we're obligated to listen to what he has to say about who Jesus is. And you know, I don't usually say this, but um, it might be good to invite some friends and neighbors to, <laughs> if they're not going to church anywhere, to come and hear about who Jesus really is. You might want to brave up and ask some people to come be a part of our, our look at that. You could ask them to next Sunday too, but um, they will grasp if they come why Christians love Jesus so much and who he is. They will grasp that. Why do we worship him? Who is he? That, those questions will be answered. John wrote his gospel so that those who don't know Jesus will find him. That's what he says at the end. And that those who do know him will be steady in their faith. Pray for the Lord to make the message clear among all who come among us over the next year. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege we have to embark on a new journey through a book that magnifies your son in many, many wonderful ways. Help us to understand it so we take it to heart and then we can share its wonderful truths. We ask this in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.